Well, we're thankful that you're here with us in the Lord's house, um, knowing it's a holiday weekend, knowing there's all kinds of, knowing it's a billion degrees. Um, you probably just care for the air conditioning, that's fine. Um, knowing there are lots of reasons uh, that we come to the Lord's house, and chief among those is to be with uh, his people uh, and to meet with him, because that is what he has promised takes place here, that he is always amongst his people, um, and he's always in his house. And so we're going to trust that the Lord will do that for us here this morning. Uh, I'm Daryl, the assistant pastor here. We have been for uh, the summer going through um, a series on the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed together, uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer line by line, breaking it down to see uh, when the disciples went to Jesus with the request uh, that they teach him how to pray. This is what Jesus said to them. Um, Here's how you pray. Pray this way. Um, and so knowing that prayer is weird, prayer is hard, for some prayer comes very easily. For myself, it's, it's kind of a grind. Uh, and so we want to look to what Jesus says about prayer, knowing that it is, uh, as we have titled the series, A Sacred Delight, as uh, what Charles Spurgeon said about prayer, um, that it is uh, that the God of heaven would bend his ear toward us to hear us, um, to hear our cries, to hear our requests. Uh, so it is a delight, um, and it's a holy delight. It's a sacred delight for us. Uh, to have conversations with the Almighty. And so uh, that is what we hope to get out of our time together this morning. Um, we, are, we have come to the phrase uh, of the Lord's Prayer, the line that asks, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, because prayer, remember, is a learned skill. It's something we had to be taught. Uh, it never comes naturally. Um, so we have to be taught how to do this. Um, he taught them to pray this. Thy will be done. God, whatever you ordain, let it come to pass. Um, In the Greek translation, that is what it says. Lord, your will, let it be. Um, And so um, that is easy to pray when we're saying it all together, like we just did. Um, It's easy to pray in the football huddles before games. If you didn't play football, that's what they do. That's it. They just pray in the huddle. or Not the huddle, the pregame. The huddle they're talking about. Daryl, it's fine. I played baseball. It's fine. Um, You know, sports ball. Um, Except when we're, if you're like me, when you're when you're alone, that's a really hard thing to pray, Uh, or at least a hard thing to believe, Um, because it's scary. Uh, Spurgeon said the four most dangerous words we pray are "Thy will be done," Uh, because what that means for us is that uh, it means one of two things: our will is not going to be done, or two our wills are going to be conformed to God's will, and then that will is going to be done. So either way, what God wants to be done will be done. Um, And Jesus, being uh, because he was the perfect model for living the Christian life, showed us uh, that even he sought to do the will of his Father before his own will. uh, And because Jesus sought to do the will of his Father, believers, us who who are following him and striving to follow him, uh, are empowered toward obedience and endurance to do the same. Uh, So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, We are taking parallel passages uh, that that appear in Matthew 6 of the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to be in Matthew 26, looking at um, Jesus being uh, the one who loves us the way that he does, actually gives us an example of this uh, from his own life. Uh, So he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, which if you spend time around church, you know he's about to die. Uh, That is kind of his last stop on his way uh, to the cross And so he walks into the garden with some requests that he makes to God, um, and he wants to show us kind of what obedience and endurance look like. So we're going to see three things. We'll see Christ the human, uh, a cup of hatred, and the cost of holiness. So I'm going to read 
Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 36 to 46 for us. So uh, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Talking with Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, let me think about your will being done. Lord, for my own life, it brings um, some excitement. It also brings some fear, uh, some anxiety, uh, some weirdness. Um, all things we see in this passage. And so, Jesus, would you be merciful to us, uh, those of us who long to, to pray these words and mean them, uh, who long to pray these words and live them out. Uh, Jesus, would you have uh, grace and mercy to us? Would you empower us and embolden us uh, to seek the Father's will? Uh, before we seek our own. Uh, in your name we do pray. Amen. Uh, again, we're looking at uh, Christ the human, the cup of wrath, and the cost of holiness. Uh, so let's look again, Matthew chapter 26. In this passage, uh, the sun is setting on Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, after growing up in relative obscurity, after working as a carpenter for the first 30 or so years of his life, uh, for just three years... Uh, Jesus had had his earthly ministry launched prior to this day, and now his time has come. Uh, if you remember in the book of John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding uh, where water is changed into wine. But while he's at that wedding, Mary comes to him and says, hey, uh, Jesus, can you do some work here and change this? Can you bring some wine out of somewhere? Uh, Jesus says to her, it's not my time yet. Uh, well, his time is now here as we see. Uh, the culmination of everything that he has intended for his earthly ministry is coming to fruition. Um, all the healings, all the teaching, all the time spent alone praying, all the time spent among the crowds, all the time fighting with the Pharisees. Uh, it's all culminating in this moment, in the dark, in a garden. It's doomsday for Jesus. And here's the thing, Jesus doesn't want to do it, which which honestly sounds heretical to say. It feels heretical to say that. Jesus actually doesn't want to do this, we're seeing here. It's the truth that Jesus was fully human. He experienced all the emotions that you experience. He felt all the pains that you feel. He knew thirst, he knew hunger, he knew physical pain, he knew exhaustion. Uh, he knew it all, and here we see that he knew the battle between doing what I want and doing what God wants. Jesus had two natures, human and divine, right? He was the son of God and son of man. He also had two wills. He had his own will and he had the will 
of the one who sent him a human and divine will there too, if you, if you could put it that way. And Jesus always moved at the pace of grace. Remember, he, he made choices. He had decisions. Uh, he went to uh, a wedding that, because he wanted to go. Jesus had will and he acted upon it all the time because he's human. Uh, he spent time with his friends because he wanted to spend time with them. He also knew what rejection was like. He knew what betrayal was like. And even in this passage here, one thing that he was desiring was for his friends to stay awake and pray with him because this storm is coming. Jesus says, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. Could you guys like stay up with me? My friends that I've been spending the last few years with, could you stay up with me and pray? My heart hurts. Uh, I'm sorrowful, I'm scared, he's anxious, he's afraid. He wants his friends. And so he asks them, remain here and watch with me. And he goes to pray and he comes back and he finds them asleep. Kind of wakes them up. Hey, I'm gonna go pray, could you stay awake? And he comes back and they're asleep again. Scripture says their eyes were heavy, which we all know what that's like. You may be experiencing it now. Um, that he, like, the, he goes to these men that are his friends and they just can't stay awake. And so his friends have let him down. So Jesus knows that part. So he's already anxious, he's already scary, he's already afraid, he's got a lot going on kind of inside of him. He, he knows what's about to happen. Jesus knew everything. And so his friends have let him down. And so I'm gonna go, to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go pray to God. I'm gonna pray to my father because we know that his father always hears him. They've been together since before there was recorded time. So he goes into the deep to pray and hear from God the Father, and he goes and makes his request. Father God, is there any other way? I know what's about to happen. I know this plan, we shook hands on it. I know what's about to happen, that I'm gonna go and be killed. Is there any other way? Because what that meant for Jesus is that he's gonna be separated from God the Father for the first time ever. This has never happened. Since before recorded time, they have been together. So he's gonna go and sure, he's gonna face abandonment. He's gonna face persecution and trial and whipping and beating and death. But he's also gonna face separation from God. He's gonna be forsaken. And that's never happened to him. And the thought of that, to bear that weight, Jesus says, is there any other way we can do this? He's not trying to get out of the physical pain so much as he's trying to get out of the pain of what it would be like to be separated from his father for an amount of time. God, is there any other way? Is there a way to accomplish this that doesn't involve me knowing the deep kind of dark pain of crucifixion, but also the deep dark pain of separation from you? Isn't it all possible? This is my request. This is what I want. God, can you make it stop? Let's make it stop. Send an angel, send a storm, send a blizzard, either the snow kind or the Dairy Queen kind, both will be fine. Send an Uber. Is there any other way, God, that we can get out of this? You orchestrate everything. Does it have to be this way? And he finishes that prayer and he's met with silence. This has never happened to him. He's met with silence for forever, y'all. Anytime God the Father and God the Son talk to each other, there's a conversation. But this time, he's met with silence. Jesus Christ called upon his Father to act, and it didn't happen. And he prays to avoid the cup, and he closes by saying, 
God, this is what I want. But what I want more than that is for your will to be done. I've made my request known to you. I've let you know what it is. I'll let you know that I'm scared. I'll let you know that I'm anxious. You know that I'm hurting. You know that I'm fearful. You know that I don't want to do this. And at the same time, I want what you want to be done. This is where Jesus is like us and also where Jesus is nothing like us. He's like us in that he knows what we're feeling. He's like us in that he knows what it's like to cry out to God and not hear anything back. But he's not like us, or he's not like me at least, in that when he makes a request, God says no, or God doesn't answer. He says, okay, then whatever you want to be done, I'll do. Because when my comfort is threatened, I retreat. When pain is in front of me, I retreat. If there's ever a, a hint that something might be hard, I'm like the disciples, I fall asleep. Just let me go take a nap, I'll avoid all of it. Sleepy, ambivalent, tired, risk-averse, unsure. That's the response that humanity has to this. But here is Jesus staring at the cup, praying that it would pass from him alone and by himself, and his prayer is not answered. Not at least the first part. And now he's gonna have to drink. So what is this, what is this cup that he has been wanting to avoid? This is our second point, the cup of wrath. Um, the cup of wrath, uh, twice Jesus prays to be spared from this cup. So what was in there? Uh, the cup in the Old Testament always served as a metaphor for judgment. Throughout scripture in both the book of Isaiah and in the book of Jeremiah, it's prophesied that there is this cup full of wine of God's holy hatred of sin. And it burns white hot. And that it's to be poured out on all who have who have perpetuated acts of evil both inwardly and outwardly for those who have sinned against God and not obeyed his commandments in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, we see that God has a cup of wrath reserved for those uh, who are unrepentant, who uh, don't do his will, um, a punishment for sin that must be poured out, must be dealt out. And it's eternal, right? Because you're eternal. Humanity is eternal, right? Our souls are eternal. God's eternal, so offense against God is eternal. And so he has this cup of wrath that is to be poured out because mankind has a will. We see this in Genesis, right? We just finished that book back in the spring that uh, God tells Adam and Eve, hey, here's the garden. He tells Adam, really, here's the garden. Everything in it is yours. Just don't touch that tree. Don't eat of that fruit. Um, and then Adam and Eve, in, in their moment of temptation, they willed themselves uh, to go and eat the fruit. Uh, so then we're all cast, uh, all who follow and born in their image, all, we, we kind of follow them. And now we're all under this weight and under this penalty of sin. Um, they've deemed what it's, uh, Adam and Eve deemed what was best for them to do. And mankind has been doing that ever since. That there must be a payment, God says, for that indiscretion. And that night in the garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus, however many years later, propped up in front of his father and he's praying. But he doesn't see God. What he sees instead is this cup of hatred that's gonna be poured on him. That this, that this white hot hatred of sin is gonna be poured on him because for him to take on your sins, it meant he was gonna have to take on the wrath of God and no one has ever done that and come out the other side. 
the garden for Jesus, this cup that he was given to take a look into was a preview of what was gonna happen to him on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus looked at this and said, God, surely we can do something else here. For the first time in history and no other time since, obedience to God's law meant death and not life. Think about that. Here's an, this is another kind of covenant theology lesson for us. Uh, Jesus is called the second Adam in scripture because Jesus did what Adam could not do. So when Adam was tempted by Satan and he fell into sin, Jesus came, was tempted by Satan in the desert and did not fall into sin. And therefore he becomes the second Adam doing what Adam could not do. But another way that he is like Adam is that Adam in the garden was told, all this is yours. If you touch that tree, you die. If you obey me, you'll live. Except for Jesus. This is what God said to him. Obey me, and it's actually gonna kill you. It's gonna crush you. Because what you're gonna do is you're gonna take on the sin and the, and the judgment and the wrath that I have for, for humanity, and you're gonna take it on yourself. And for Jesus to take this, it was gonna crush him. For Jesus to take this, when he looks at that cup, it's either poured out on all of us or Jesus says it's gonna be poured out on me. It's either poured out and the only, poss on the only possible one who could be the sacrifice for us or it's gonna be poured out on us. Jesus was gonna have to die and Jesus being the most emotionally healthy person to ever live, cried out to God for this cup to pass him. And Jesus, the most emotionally healthy person to ever live, also said, but let not your will be done, or rather, let your will be done and not mine. Because his death was unlike any other death. When we hear stories of death in scripture, those who are martyred for the faith, when we hear stories from church history of those who are martyred from the faith. Um, we think of Stephen in uh, Acts chapter eight, where he is uh, stoned with rocks. Uh, and as he's dying, he says he looks up and be, he beheld Jesus standing there welcoming him in. He gets a standing ovation from Jesus as the first martyr in scripture. Every time someone was martyred, uh, if you know the story of the Oxford martyrs in England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley who were burned at the stake for their faith um, is this famous story. And as they were being burned, Latimer said to Ridley, Master Ridley, do your part and play the man. For I imagine on this day, there will be a flame lit that no one will ever be able to tamp out. All these martyrs, as they're about to die, they're being drawn closer to God and they're being welcomed in. But as Jesus is about to die, it's actually being drawn further away from God. In almost every story, there's a sense of peace as death drew near to them, that God was holding them close. What we see here in Gethsemane is for Jesus, that was not the case. When Jesus was brought near to see his own death, he was not greeted by a smiling father that he was always known. He was greeted by silence and a cup of wrath and his friends were asleep. The very ones he was gonna be taking this cup of wrath for, Jesus could have easily said no. Jesus could have chosen his own will and followed his own desires and circumvented obedience if he wanted to. But there was something he wanted more. He wanted to do the will of God. To be in God's will, to pray thy will be done was going to cost Jesus his life. And out of love for his father's will and out of his love for you and for me, there in a garden all alone and by himself 
And after he had spent time pleading that it could be different, he came back to his droopy disciples and he said, the hour is here. It says in verse 46, take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus walked in to pray to God, asked for this cup to be taken from him. God said, no. Jesus said, your will be done. And then he walked out and he said, I will face death for my people. That is the cost of holiness. Jesus chose obedience to God and his word and his plan over obedience to his own will, which is our third point, the cost of holiness. Looking again at the end of, uh, of, the, end of the passage here, verse 45 and 46. Jesus emerged from the garden with his face set toward the cross. God had not answered his cries, so he voluntarily surrendered his will to the will of God. Jesus is showing us what love does. Jesus is showing us not only what love does, but what those of us who follow Jesus and follow God are to do. When Jesus was, when Jesus was alive and teaching, he said, if you love Jesus, you will obey his commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. Not because you're some shill, not because you're some lackey, but because you trust that Jesus really does love you. If I love you, if you love me, then you'll do what I ask. Not because Jesus is trying to get your, like your, your obedience necessarily in terms of like he's a cruel dictator trying to get you to do what he wants, what he wants to do. He's saying, look at what I've done for you. Can't you see that I have what's best for you in mind? And he really meant it. Look at what I've done. Trust me that what Jesus has for you is better than what you can choose for yourself. And this is why, as G.K. Chesterton says, that the Christian life has not been tried and found to be wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So here's the thing. God's not gonna ask you to take on the sins of the world because you can't. You're not Jesus, you can't do that. Jesus isn't gonna ask you to do what only he could do in terms of saving the world, but following him does mean that he's gonna ask you to give something up. The path to God the Father still goes through praying, thy will be done, which means my will will not be done unless my will is in line with yours. What this means is that when scripture and our wills are at odds with one another, then scripture wins. If our desires and what we have and what we want for ourselves comes into contact with scripture and scripture says, no, it's actually not that way, then we lay down our arms and we do what scripture says. We bend our wills to scripture, not the other way around. This is what it means when when Jesus says that he is the Lord of our lives. It means that he gets full access to us. So when we pray things like thy will be done, it means that he has full access to us. There are no locked doors. There are no junk drawers. There are no things that we're hiding. Jesus has full access to you and he's gonna come in and he's gonna start moving stuff around. When we pray thy will be done, this is why it's so dangerous. This is what N.T. Wright says about Jesus. How can you live with this terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham. 
And most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. If Jesus is who he says he is, Tim Keller says, we must become the, he must become, rather, the still point of your turning world, the center around which your entire life revolves. What Keller's saying, what Wright is saying, what Jesus is saying to the disciples when he tells them, pray thy will be done is this. Jesus is not interested in playing second fiddle to you or your desires. God's not interested in that. Which is wildly countercultural for us. It's wildly countercultural for me. I'm a good red-blooded, I have American flag socks on right now. Like, you can't tell me what to do. Like, that's not what freedom is, but Jesus isn't interested in interacting with us on that basis. God the Father isn't interested in interacting with us on that basis. Instead, God says, look at Jesus and look at how he has loved you. Look at how he has loved you. Look at how he stood between you and the locomotive of wrath that was intended for you, that he would die and that you would get to go free that if Jesus is willing to do that for you, then you can trust him. If Jesus standing before the open mouth of hell said, I'm gonna walk in there for you, and it's gonna kill me, so that you can go free, then you can trust him, and you can obey him, not to get what you want, but to get what he wants for you. And for all of us, that's really hard. Because what this means is that it's going to cost us things. It's going to cost us relationships, whether dating or platonic or otherwise. That if I'm really praying, thy will be done, then it means that Jesus has a say over who I date. It means Jesus has a say in who I have sex with. It means Jesus has a say in what I do with my sexuality. It means Jesus has a say in how much I drink and how much I eat, that he has a say in how much I parent, or how much I parent, or that I parent, I guess. I'm only parenting this much. But <laughs> Jesus has a say in what I view online. He has a say in my money and how I spend it. That there isn't an area of our lives that he does not lord over or have access to that when we pray thy will be done, that we mean it. That is when my idea, that, that when my will comes to him, with an idea or an accusation, that I have all the freedom in the world to express that. That's what we see here. Jesus was anxious. Jesus was angry. Jesus was angry at his friends for falling asleep. Jesus was the most emotionally healthy person who ever lived. Jesus was sad. Jesus said he was sorrowful to the point of death. That you can come to God with your anger, your sadness, your thoughts, your feelings about it. It's emotionally healthy to do that. Please do that. We wouldn't have Psalms, we wouldn't have Lamentations, we wouldn't have Ecclesiastes, we wouldn't have a lot of the Bible, we wouldn't have church. If we couldn't come to the Lord with those things that we are sad about, angry about, happy about, joyful about, mad about, Jesus says, do all that. I did it here in the garden. God says, bring that to me. And at the same time, Jesus says, thy will be done. God, I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm angry. I thought this was going to work out. It's not going to work. I thought he was going to marry me. Now he's not. I thought this marriage was going to last, but now it's not. God, I'm so angry. I want to do these things. I want to date this person. I want to do this. I want to engage in this. But I want your will to be done. 
That's what Christianity brings to us. It gives you the ability to hold both things at the same time. This is what Jesus does. God, here's where I'm at. I don't want to do this. But I want your will to be done. When we lose that tension, we end up being like the rich young ruler story we're told about in the Gospels when he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, keep all the commandments. He said, cool, I've done that. What else do I need to do? Uh, Jesus says, well, you've kept all the commandments, I guess. Then uh, give all your stuff away and then come follow me. And he said, no, I'm not gonna do that. And he walked away sad. His will trumped what Jesus had for him. God gives us the endurance through the Holy Spirit to be able to run this race of obedience that is fueled by the love that he has for us. The love that he has for us made manifest on the cross of Calvary. And it's the only reason that we can come and take the Lord's Supper like we're about to do. That when we stand there in the tension of the things that we desire and desiring God's will to be done above those things, it's right that you're confused. It's right that you're angry. God says, bring it to me. Bring it to the one who, when he was in that spot, chose my will over his own because of his love for you. So when we come and drink of this cup, we don't drink the cup of wrath. For the Christian, there is no cup of wrath. For the non-Christian, there is. It's hot and it's weird. Stay away from it. But for the Christian, there is, there is no cup of wrath for you. We get to drink from the cup of salvation. We get to drink from the cup that says, where God says, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink. For as often as you take this bread and you drink this cup, you remember, you proclaim my death to the day of my return. That's what we get to drink from. But there's not an ounce of wrath left in that cup. It was all poured out on Jesus. Then it was washed and I guess he threw it away. I don't know what happened to it. All I know is this, it's not there for you. that there is only a cup of love that we encounter. And so as we come to take of the table, as we're led in worship, are the kids coming in? No kids coming in. We've got some praying to do, y'all. No kids coming in to take the table. That as we prepare our hearts for this, as we live in the tension of what I want and what God wants for me, pray that the Lord gives you the desire to say, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you. I come to you. Thy will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. God the Father, God the Son, what you experience every moment in heaven, would you let that be done on earth? Would you let it be done in our hearts first and then to the watching world around us? that they can see that there's something different about those Christians. There's something different about those who don't respond to my wrath with wrath, but respond to my wrath with kindness. Because God, that's what you did for us. Scripture tells us it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. I so said, God, would you be kind to us uh, as our slow trotting feet are, are, are slowly making their way back to you. Lord, our repentance is slow, but as Spurgeon says, your forgiveness is swift. 
So Jesus, would you do that for us? Have mercy on us. Uh, Search us and know us, examine us. Uh, Lord, give us the grace and the mercy uh, to suffer well as we let things go, uh, knowing that you have much better things in store for us. It's in your name we do pray. Amen.